You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Raymond Strack. He is founder and CEO at Shasta Grown. We're going to talk about the uh, the world of cannabis, about vertically integrated cannabis. We're going to talk about quality. We're going to talk about location. And we're going to chat a little bit about this idea of Appalachian. So I think some people may may know of that from, from other products and other parts of the world and how it can uh, and is going to be applied the world of weed uh, and some interesting kind of how that gets done, why that gets done, and some interesting stories and examples and kind of where we are with some of those ideas. So with all that, Raymond, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Really excited. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we get into Shasta Grown and everything you're doing now, let's get a little backstory. What's the professional background? How do you get into cannabis? What's the uh, what's the journey that you've been on? Absolutely. So, you know, been a cannabis enthusiast from a relatively young age, uh, always... <laughs> Felt it was fairly benign, especially in relation to the other semi-ubiquitous substance we all have in society, alcohol. Yeah, And um, I uh, grew up in New York City, first generation Irish immigrant. My mother came over to this country. And um, my father worked for uh, federal government. For He was a merchant marine and worked for the Department of Treasury. So I moved around my whole life. And I went to high school in Tokyo, where I learned a little bit about what cannabis looks like outside of the United States in the late 90s, early 2000s. Interesting. Yeah. And um, uh, so, and what was it? What, what, what did cannabis look like in Japan? Uh, it, I mean, it's extraordinarily illegal. They, def- yeah. the, the government of Japan for a very long time did not have its own equivalent to the Controlled Substances Act. And so their federal laws deferred to the 1952 Unified UN Narcotics Convention documentation. Okay. Excuse me, 1956. I got that wrong. But, and, it's very illegal. Five years in prison for a joint. Yeah. Um, the only thing we could get a hold of was hash that came through the Khyber Pass through China from uh-huh. Nepalese folks. And the uh, statute of limitations has definitely gone on this. So I'm okay talking about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, did, it was, we had to deal with Nepalese dudes. It was like kind of like anyone's ever seen wow. Moonshiners. It was like a double blind drop where like you'd pay the guy and then another dude would leave it above a light fixture in a restaurant. And you'd like go into the bathroom Jeez. and like go up above the light and like take the, yeah, it was crazy. But it was really good ash from, from Afghanistan or Pakistan, uh-huh. you know, came through, yep. the, came through China and across the sea into Japan. And um when I moved back to the United States, I went to uh, undergrad at University of Florida, and I actually uh-huh. um, interned for the State Department and um, was intending on taking the foreign service exam to go work overseas in uh, embassies on behalf of the State yep. Department, on behalf of the federal government. Yep. And I went so far as to change my majors and ended up double majoring in 
economic anthropological theory as well as linguistics specifically for that career track. And um, my senior year, I got arrested and the uh, State Department said, good luck with no the rest way. of your life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, uh, you know, ended up having to do a little probation uh, in the uh -huh. state of Florida. And, um, you know, just was kind of angry in a lot of ways because I yeah. had prepped and planned and oriented my life for this direction that was pulled out from under me for something that I did not consider to be a, yeah. you know, a black mark on the record per se, as it were. But, you know, the federal government for security clearance purposes in 2004, that was a non-negotiable issue. Yeah. And yeah. Um, had a one kind of career between college and cannabis as the operations coordinator for a fairly large 600 person visual effects facility okay. where I worked for about 18 months, two years until I completed my probationary period and took the opportunity to follow in the path of some older friends who had been out here growing for a while. Mm -hmm. And I truly believed in my heart that during my lifetime, I would see the descheduling or rescheduling or decriminalization, you know, whatever. at that point it was very nascent, but we yeah. knew that the laws were going to change in our lifetime. And I knew that by getting involved, I could contribute to that change. And so yeah. I packed everything I owned and I drove to Grass Valley and I worked at some farms in Grass Valley and worked at some indoors in San Francisco proper in like the Bayshore mm -hmm. district and, um, ended up coming up to visit Mount Shasta which is where the city of weed is, where our project uh -huh. is located, where Shasta Grown is located. And I've lived here for 12 years now. And I just absolutely fell in love with the topography, with the stark nature of this region where three mountain chains collide and a 14,000 foot volcano dominates the landscape. It just is incredibly intriguing to me to think about the geologic time that this place represents. Yeah, fascinating. Um, it's absolutely gorgeous. I wake up every day so grateful. It's amazing. And so I fell in love with it up here. It took me another year or so to like find a property. Uh, it's back and forth between, like I said, kind of foothills area, city proper, worked at some farms in the triangle, looked at property around the triangle and managed to find a home here uh, that I was able to do my 215 on. And uh, mm -hmm. I grew for a number of dispensaries in San Francisco, uh, primarily Spark, the San Francisco Patients Area Resource Council. Okay. And um, just kind of did the deal up until the law started to change. At which point, my uh, co-founder, Matthew Dodson, and I started a regulatory compliance consulting firm because I have a halfway decent background in policy and regulatory frameworks as a result of my academic background. And mm -hmm. um, we worked in a number, number of states writing up HACCP plans, which many of your listeners may be familiar with, Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Point. Mm -hmm. It is a federally standardized consumables manufacturing safety protocol. And we partnered with a firm out of Nevada and authored a HACCP plan specific for cannabis cultivation and manufacturing that we knew would fit within Ish. just about any state regulatory framework. And um, while we awaited, you know, the handing down of the regulatory framework post Prop 64 vote, not knowing how it was going to kind of turn out, not knowing what our options are for permitting were going to be, we focused on limited license access states and helping companies do project development in those states. And it was a eye-opening experience to see some of the fundamental differences in how jurisdictions were looking at cannabis, you know, especially compared to what we were used to under 215, which was like, wink, yeah. wink, nudge, nudge, right? And what, yeah, what were you finding or what was, what were some of the differences that occurred? Mm, that the regulators were 
incredibly undereducated on the nuances of our industry. They were trying to fit, you know, square peg round hole, classic, right? Yeah. Not understanding. I mean, I remember going to some of the early stakeholder meetings here in California and sitting next to Lori Ajak. And um, <laughs> she had, she knew who I was because for a variety of reasons. And she's talking to me and she's going, we're really not getting the level of input from you guys as we need. And yeah. if no one shows up and tells us how this works, we're going to end up imposing a system that y'all are not happy with. Yeah. But it's going to be for lack of input, not because yeah. we're trying to be vindictive. It's because if you don't tell us what to do, we have to pull from some other paradigm. Yeah. You know, we can't, you know, and um, I'm not terribly stoked on how everything went with Prop 64, yeah. how all that kind of eked out. But the fact of the matter is, it's the system in which we have to work and they're constantly trying to, you know, improve it. And one day we'll get there, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I'm, I'm an eternal um, optimist, so I'm just, you know. And and again, listen, I remember getting up at 2.30 in the morning so I could leave here at 3.30 to make it down geez. at 6.30 a.m. for business practices subcommittee meetings when they were writing cannabis regulatory language. And I was one yeah. of four growers that had the cojones to go to that California uh-huh. assembly meeting and stand up at the podium and say, you guys are about to choke the golden goose. Yeah. And I, as a result of my very, I mean, I, what I thought to be fairly well-documented critiques, I was asked by three of the five members of that committee that I presented in front of for in-person meetings subsequent, because they were like, yeah. you clearly know what you're talking about and you understand the regulatory framework. You're not just coming and complaining, you're coming with solutions. Suggestions, yeah. And they loved it. Yeah. And um, as a result, I got pretty tight with some of the early environmental scientists who were working with CDFA to draft regulatory rule sets. Um, I work with our local ag department and ag commissioner here, even though Siskiyou does not have a broad permitting structure for those cities within the counties that do have permit mm-hmm. programs. You know, the ag commissioner still oversees some portions of those activities. And um this is a great opportunity to parlay into how my involvement with the Appalachians program came about. So under 26063 sub B in the original <laughs> Prop 64 law, it was a one yep. line item that said by January 1st, 2023, the CDFA shall create a program for cannabis Appalachians. One line. Oh, really? So it was actually in, it was actually in the regs? Yes, it was. Big up Hezekiah Allen, among others. Yeah. Let's just kind of define what that means. So when we talk about Appalachians, what are we actually referring to? So an Appalachian is a concept uh, currently governed by a 1994 UN trade treaty that describes the process whereby if a producer can illustrate a causal link between a unique aspect of their product and the place and manner in which it was created, that you have something special that's specific to where you are, based upon both objective and subjective metrics and the historical uh the and i give this analogy not infrequently kind of started as a uh just a you know well listen we both grow the same grape like imagine back in the day two farmers in france growing the exact uh-huh. same grape variety. one guy has slightly better water one guy thinks he has slightly better soil you know one guy's declination of sun is is x one guy's declination of sun is y and they would take those grapes and compare them. Uh-huh. Same grapes, yep. grown in slightly different, I mean, you know, across the hill, right? Stones throw across the hill. Mm-hmm. And so those kind of, for lack of a better term, pissing matches between farmers on, well, you you might have better sun, but I have better water. Well, you might have better water, but I got better soil. Yeah. 
that is the true impetus for products whose manu I don't want to say necessarily manufacturing, although that is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. A component of it when you get into viticulture, obviously. Yeah. But historically within the French and Italian model, which is a petition based model, you have six macro categories of mm -hmm. inputs. Some are objective and some are subjective. So your climate, your topography and declination of sun, uh, including obviously latitude and longitude, your cloth and climate zone, your soil mm -hmm. and your water. Those are more like objective, like what is the plant being fed? You can measure those. Yeah. You can measure those very finitely. The subjective components of an appellation are standards of practice, right? How do you grow? How do you manicure that plant? When in veg do you first top? When uh -huh. in veg do you first start to scrog or stretch it out? You know, uh -huh. and then historical varietals, or alternately, there's there's competing language in different in different rule sets. Historical varietals also you some people refer to them as regionally specific varietals. Okay. So things that are bred in a region that perform very well in that region, but if you were to say take them to another region, they would vastly underperform. Yeah. Huh. So so yeah, you've got some objective quality standards and some subjective. Yeah, I was just gonna say just to give ground for people. So so I mean the way this shows up like in wine is like champagne. Like you have in order to be called a champagne, you have to be grown and produced in the champagne region of France and a specific type to... of grape grown in a specific yeah. time window with yeah and 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 if it's not champagne, it's sparkling wine. And the government yeah, of champagne exactly. serves several dozen lawsuits every year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they drink control. It's, it's like a quasi brand almost. I mean, it's like, it's a reference to yeah. a particular kind of set of qualities that, that are exclusive to a particular area. Yeah. Um, and actually, any other good examples of Appalachians that maybe we don't think about? Absolutely. So Appalachians are one subtype of a broader concept called a geographic indicator. Yeah. Huh. Appalachians are specific to wine. Geographic indicators cover things like Iberico ham, prosciutto oh, parmesan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Parmesan Reggiano. Stilton cheese. Isn't there some like like blue cheese, Stilton cheese or something? There's a couple uh, of cheeses. Yeah, no, that are cheeses, meats, yeah. beers. So like Belgian lambics, true open, open fermented Belgian lambics. Uh -huh. That's a type of it. You know what I mean? So we think of Appalachians as something specific to viticulture, to wine. Yeah. But the reality is that Appalachians are one subsect of a broader concept called geographic indicators. And for any of our listeners, all of this is governed by the 1994 UN trade treaty known as the Lisbon Treaty, which covers geographic indicators and defines them as a form of shared traditional knowledge that is effectively co-owned as a public-private partnership between the utilizers of the mark and those who create the standards for the mark, that is to say the farmers or the manufacturers and the jurisdictional government which receives some remuneration for the use of the nomenclature, as well as to cover costs for going after people who utilize the name improperly, right? So yeah. the, the champagne, the farmers that grow the grapes that go into champagne, they pay into this fund, and that's what pays for the government of champagne to file those lawsuits. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. Interesting. So, so that is, it's um, is a designation, but it's also then kind of infrastructure or a, a collective that then then actually defines and regulates and defends the the classification. Absolutely interesting. And, and that's one thing that's actually going to really I, I fear that the way 
the state of California has gone about implementing the Appalachians program, I fear that it may end up being a net detriment to many users, that is to say licensed cultivators or manufacturers who want to differentiate their products, but you're going to have a lot of infighting amongst yeah. the potential users of that quality certification mark because of differences in standards of practice. And where do we draw these lines? Are they topographical lines or are they ridges? Are they hydrologic divides or are they watersheds? Are they, you know, so there's a lot of different ways that you can start to define uh, regionality. And as you get smaller and smaller, I always use the, uh, the analogy of the, you know, the Russian nesting dolls. Mm, yeah. California is the biggest one. <laughs> and then you got SoCal, NorCal, and then within uh -huh. each of those, you got, you know, and you just keep going down the line yeah. until you're in tiny little valleys <laughs> in like, very specific watershed, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, I do fear that the nature of the petition process is going to lead to a lot of infighting amongst folks who are, you know, not seeing eye to eye on how best to capitalize on say Humboldt or, you know, now County of origin is a different thing. I do want to make one thing very clear to any of our listeners. Mm -hmm. Anyone has the implicit right to label their product as a product of whatever County it came from. Mm -hmm. That's different than an Appalachian Got it. or different than a geographic indicator. Yeah. Why, I guess, why, why even do this for cannabis? Like what's the, what is it about cannabis that lends itself to kind of an Appalachian model or a geographic indicator model? And and, and practically from an industry, you know, why is it helpful or like who does it help or who is, who benefits from, you know, have, having some kind of Appalachian designation system? So I'll, I'll start at the back end. It helps the consumer. Okay. Right. A great example. There's an article the other day about these gray market bodegas in New York interviewing mm -hmm. this gentleman. He goes, I don't want a license. If I have a license, that means the only cannabis I'm selling was grown in New York state. And my customers <laughs> want cannabis from California. So why don't I get exactly. a permit? So yeah. I don't think anyone would snarf at the pent up demand for Northern California cannabis. I mean, listen, they, they grow a lot of grapes in Long Island, not too many Long Island wine aficionados. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and how, so I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is because like, I get it and, and Northern California weed is pretty amazing. But, you know, so much weed is grown in indoors, controlled environments, yeah. you know, these days that have we, in a lot of our kind of cultivation practices, have we just abstracted ourselves out of this kind of Appalachian kind of scenario? Indoor cultivation, yes, I, I would agree. So this was a very, very hotly debated topic during the yeah. state committee. The idea was that uh, if you could show the causal link between product and place in at least four of those six macro categories that I described to you okay. that the petition would ostensibly be heard. And as you can imagine, an indoor cultivator, you are declination of sun and climate are already out of the question, right? So you've already lost two of the four. So unless you can show soil, water standards and varietals, and most indoor growers use sterile soil. So we're not talking about organic living soil. And yep. most indoor also uses RO water. So we're not really, you know, we have spring water here and that's a huge, huge thing for us because it increases the bioavailability of nutrients. So the way that we drafted the initial petition style effectively disincluded indoor. It did not expressly exclude it. But the fact of the matter is that it would have been 
almost impossible for an indoor cultivator yeah. to write a petition document showing the causal link between product and place if two or three of the macro categories were not applicable. Yeah. Where you get into a more nuanced argument is greenhouses. Okay. And that is where I believe the law went too far to disinclude things as simple as light deprivation greenhouses, which if you look at the historical backdrop of appellations, standards of practice, that is to say, how have you been creating this product over the course of its lifetime? And, you know, we're talking about in the, out in the triangle, you've got second, third generation professional cannabis farmers that their grandfather taught their father or their grandmother taught their mother, and then they taught the kid. And mm -hmm. historically, they used light dead greenhouses. And so to yeah. exclude something that is innately part of the culture and innately part of the cultivation modality that has been prevalent in the region kind of shot a lot of people in the foot. And there's there are a heck of a lot of cultivators in the triangle who are very unhappy with the fact that greenhouses and mixed light were excluded. Yeah. Because mixed light, you could show, right? Especially if you have a you know glass roof house, even if mm -hmm. you have controlled environment agriculture, you know, maybe you have to work within five of the six. But if you only have to show a causal link on two thirds of the six macro categories, mm -hmm. which was kind of the consensus that we came to at the committee level, which was obviously then changed at the legislative level, unfortunately, um, yeah. that was the idea that Basically, we were making it so that an indoor cultivator would very rarely, if ever, qualify, and greenhouse cultivators would have to show why they qualify. What's the causal yeah. link? What's special yeah. about your soil or your water or your standards of practice or your breeding methods or et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Interesting. And so do you think this is going to, I mean, I guess, where is this at the, as of today? Where is this in terms of actually you know, coming to fruition, what needs to get worked out? What What do you think the, you know, kind of future is going to be in terms of getting appellations established and, and put in place for consumers? Sure. So, I mean, I, you know, the goal is for nomenclatures like Humboldt or like the Emerald Triangle or in our case, Weed California become synonymous with high caliber, you know, Northern California cannabis as markets open up in the years and decades to come. Mm -hmm. I think that in terms of getting the program off the ground, we're still a good ways away. Those petition documents, there's still some infighting as to how many licensed cultivators within a given region have to sign off for an appellation. Like if, if only three, if there's, let's for uh, just an example, you take a small watershed in Humboldt and you got, let's call it three dozen cultivators that would fit within that hydrological boundary. And only three of them do the do the work for the petition uh -huh. document. Do those other permit holders get to utilize, even though they didn't yeah. put in towards the process? Because it is a laborious process, both time and fiduciarily and time wise, yeah. to craft this document. You know, you have to have soil samples done. You have to have water sampling done. You have to go back to the historical documentation as to like why and how the state water boards defined hydrologic boundaries, because obviously that's one of the primary components for Appalachians. So I think, and it goes back to what I said, I think there's going to be a lot of infighting among the potential users of these quality certification marks. And you're going to see a fracturing and a fragmentation of those areas where you have, you know, many, many potential users who maybe 
do things differently, grow different varietals, feed their plants different nutrients. And, and obviously then the more objective, you know, are you on the North or South slope? You know, what's your sun exposure? How much, you know, that, when does the, when does the coastal layer burn off? Is it, does it burn off at nine or does it burn off at 1130? Big difference. Now for us, for Shasta Grown, we are working as a geographic indicator. So because we are doing controlled environment greenhouses, we fall within that category of being effectively disallowed to utilize the phrase cannabis appellation. However, the phrase cannabis appellation technically means nothing because the UN doesn't acknowledge it. And the UN is the <laughs> arbiter of appellation yeah. issuances. Like I said, yeah. I, I truly believe, and there's, uh, uh, there's already efforts being made in other parts of the state to, uh, go back and amend the program to, um, explicitly exclude indoor, but allow greenhouse cultivators a path yeah. to the permitting process. Yeah. Or to the, uh, excuse me, to the petition process, I should say, rather. Yeah. So um, geographic indicators are a little simpler. They also allow a lot more flexibility because for us, the geographic indicator is governed by a joint committee that is that was created by our city council that the ag department is involved in, that we as the mark user are involved in. But it's also a unique situation because within the jurisdiction, we are the only user of the mark. So because we don't have that chorus of voices that are saying, no, I want it this way. No, I want it that way. We have a lot more of a streamlined process or path forward. So the weed California quality certification mark is going to, it's going to be a QR code. You can scan it. You can see when that plant, when those genetics were bred, what batch of seeds were planted. We could go very deep into it for, for cannabis nerds who want to learn more about pheno hunting and, and the things that we enjoy, always into sharing knowledge. But, you know, you can imagine someone in London or Lisbon or Frankfurt or Cairo or wherever, anywhere around the world, Melbourne, Australia, wherever, Japan, walk into a store and say, I want weed from Northern California. Well, here's this product that says weed California or California weed. And for us, that makes it an easy distinguishing mark. You know, is someone in, is someone overseas or in someone in another place going to know the Matol Valley in Humble? Probably not. <laughs> but are they going to yeah. be able to see California weed, big, bright, and shiny for a quality certification mark with a QR code that you can scan? Yeah, absolutely. That to me is the long-term brand value proposition. Yeah. Now is, is all of this, this is sort of somewhat moot until we get federal legalization and interstate commerce? I mean, how, how does that, Yeah. how does that play into the development of this? Now, again, with the recent, well, now not super recent, but with the, with the relatively recent guidance on the shipping of uh, seeds and clones that because of their lack of THC uh, don't okay. fall under the Controlled Substances Act, we're already receiving inquiries from cultivators in other states who would like to be able to claim Northern California genetics. So for us, our first revenue stream in the, uh, in the project here, which is a, uh, it's a 56-acre, we call it a cannatourism vertical, uh, because mm -hmm. we're a vertically integrated cannabis company, but with a very, very robust cannatourism tie-in, obviously being the town's name at the base of Mount Shasta, which a lot of people love it up here. And quite frankly, because we are adjacent to I-5, and so we have 15 million people passing by annually, and mm -hmm. <laughs> lots of them already pull over just to take a picture with the sign. <laughs> and so if you 
don't think that those people who pull off to take a picture with the sign and buy a kitschy t-shirt, those people are going to tour the greenhouses and exit through the gift shop and take pictures and post it on Instagram. And that's how you're going to drive brand loyalty. And that's how you're going to get experiential cannabis consumers and big ups to Brian Applegar, California or the Cannabis Tourism International Association, big ups, Brian. Yeah. That modality is actually being picked up on very, very strongly right now. And, um, we are in talks with a hotelier group because they are extremely excited about the prospect of being able to build a custom suited cannabis hotel experience, you know, kind of like a vineyard model where you go stay at the vineyard and you tour the greenhouses and the tasting room and all this good stuff. That's it. And, um, very luckily for us, we've got the name. And quite frankly, the human pass through because of the highway. Uh-huh. If we didn't have the highway, the numbers wouldn't be as juicy. Yeah, and so it's a real it's a real blessing. Yeah, I'm excited to to hear how this plays out. Ray, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the work that you do, more about Shasta Grown, what's the best way to get that information? Absolutely. So, um, uh, Ray at ShastaGrown.com. Anybody wants to reach out directly. Shastagrown.com is our website. We do have a uh, contact form on there where you'll be uh, directed to uh, one of my colleagues, if not to me, depending on what the inquiry is related to. Our Instagram is at Shastagrown. We don't have a ton of content on there being pre-operational, but there's some pretty cool photos of the site work that's being done. So the clearing, tree felling, Uh stuff like that. Um, We just got all of our public utility easement and drainages approved, which will allow us to um, kind of do some more work over winter with the uh, intention of having the utilities done, you know, spring, summer next year. And, um, you know, it's a long-term project. It's an export project. You, you correctly alluded. And um, it's just, uh, it's, it's something that we're really glad that we have been patient with. Uh, We had an opportunity to operationalize a component of this two years ago. But the terms were, in my estimation, fairly predatory, and we turned that money down. And at the time, it felt like, you know, well, Nelly, the sky is falling. But at the end of the day, by bootstrapping it and accomplishing everything that we could without having to sell off large chunks of equity in the company, we've put ourselves in a far, far better position for the long-term fiduciary health of the company and our fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders. Yeah, excellent. So I'll make, I'll make sure all the handles and the information in the show notes so people can click through and get that. I highly encourage everyone to check it out. Contact Ray if you have questions. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. One last thought. If anybody is, is interested, there's a great article came out in the New York Times last year that I was profiled in. It's called No Longer the Devil's Lettuce, The Town of Weed Embraces Its Name, <laughs> which is a quote that I gave the author, Thomas Fuller, the San Francisco Bureau Chief for the New York Times, did a great write-up, and it talks about the community's the process that we went through as a community to figure out how we wanted this industry to work for us as a community. Obviously, they did not uh-huh. want to just open the floodgates so that every snake oil salesman within a thousand miles came to grow weed and weed. And, um, yeah, exactly. you know, I've been here long enough that I'm a part of the community. I volunteer a lot. I'm the chairperson of our city economic development committee. I'm, I'm in the rotary, you know what I mean? Like a big, and if anyone here wants to know how you can make ends with other quadrants of your community, of other decision makers within your community, I highly recommend that you look into joining service organizations similar to Rotary because yeah. people notice when you show up to volunteer to help bag school lunches or to help the Girl Scouts build planter boxes for their elementary school garden. These are things that are useful for our industry to kind of take the edge off from yeah. those people in the community who think that we are apart from rather than a part of. Yeah. No, I think that, that that's 
something I've certainly noticed about the people that are really making a, a, a strong positive impact in cannabis is they're highly active in their local communities and helping with the whole perception relationship, you know, with the cannabis industry and, and individuals. And, and so I, I highly encourage that as well. Great. It's been a pleasure. I'll make sure everything's in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. That art, that, that New York, that New York times article does a great job of explaining that it was about an 18 month process here locally where we had a I'm sure. ad hoc committee meeting and every month and I'd go in and I'd present. Yeah. It was a big, it was a big to do. Yeah. I'll make sure that the link to the article is on the show notes as well. Thanks again for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Bruce, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, now you know how. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.